Thanks for tuning in to Christian Medical and Dental Association's chapel. May the message be a blessing to you. It is a blessing to be able to be here, a blessing to be able to spend time in God's Word with you guys, obviously come to a beautiful setting. I was coming to Dan ahead of time, as many times I've been out here, I don't think I've been here in the snow, and just to be able to see it from an even different perspective, and I know that uh, you guys appreciate it as well, but for here, it is your craziness, for me, it's the break from it, so it's a little bit easier for someone from the outside just to take a moment and appreciate the blessing and, and just to be able to, to step out. I want to take some time today and look at a passage in in the book of Galatians. Uh, We had the chance last year in our church uh, to go through, uh, spend about three and a half months in the book of Galatians. And every time I get ready to start a a book, uh, I think I feel like a lot of pastors do. There's always a few passages that I'm really anticipating. And maybe it's just because I really love the passage, or maybe because I know that there's just going to be a lot in there that I'm going to be convicted by and need to be convicted by and the church needs to be. And as you go into Galatians, I mean, there's some just beautiful, well-known passages about, you know, dying and living in Christ and about the fruit of the Spirit and about restoring brothers. And I was, was so excited about those. But also, it almost happens with every single book of the Bible is that one or two passages just seem to come out of nowhere. And there are passages that I've just realized that I've underappreciated. And as we come to them and just had the opportunity to dive in, realize that there are just so many more riches in that and so much more to be convicted by and challenged by than I had ever appreciated. And, and after we finish, I just can't quite get that out of my mind. And one of those passages going through Galatians is the passage from 6, 6 through 10. And I wanted today, we're going to open up by looking at verses 1 through 10. And so we'll do those well-known uh, verses at the beginning of the chapter. But want primarily to look at those just to give context as we dive into to focusing on verses 6 through 10 because they provide a very important foundation for us. And as we get into those verses 6 through 10, if again, verses that I know that you guys are probably familiar with, I think there's a lot in there that's going to be convicting for us, a lot in there that's going to make us uncomfortable and is going to challenge us. But if we're willing to take the time and to hear what God says to us, I think that there's going to be an invitation to participate in His wonderful work in new ways as well. So that in mind, let's open up in prayer and get ready to look at Galatians 6. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these brothers and sisters and the chance to be able to just gather together and study and reflect on and rejoice in. Just luxuriate in your word together. Father, we ask that you would open up our eyes to the wonders of your word. That the Holy Spirit be at work in us as we receive and hear and respond. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. And we ask these things in your Son's holy name. Amen. So we'll pick up in in Galatians 6 and begin in verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, as a person is discovered in some sin, you who are spiritual restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Pay close attention to yourselves so that you are not tempted to. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one examine his own work, then he can take pride in himself and not compare himself to someone else, for each one will carry his own load. 
Now, obviously, there's a ton you could spend time, and I'm sure you've heard multiple messages on these verses, and we're not going to plumb those depths, but I do want us to notice something about the context and foundation that Paul establishes here that's going to be critical to appreciating the verses to come. You know, he says these, what seem to be two very opposite ideas, but he presents them as being able to coexist without contradicting each other at all. On one hand, he says, you have responsibility for each other. You have to look out for each other. You have to be proactive in helping each other out. Even going to the point that he says, carry one another's burdens. But at the same time, he says, but look out after yourselves. Each one is going to have to carry his own load. So he's saying, you need to look out for each other, but you also have to take full responsibility for yourself. And this is a case where hopefully we can appreciate the breadth and the consistency and the fullness of the teaching of Scripture and the importance of reading it in context. Because if I wanted to just pull part of that out and make an excuse for myself, I probably could if I took some of those verses out of context. If I wanted to blame other people for my struggles, which I often do, I can look at verses 1 and 2 and say, other people need to help me out, I need to carry my burdens. And I'm struggling because not enough people are there for me. Or if on the other hand, if I want to say, well, I don't want to have to worry about anybody else, I just want to take care of myself, I can look at verses 3 through 5 and take those out of context and say other people need to take care of themselves. But if we look at all those verses in context, and recognize them together, we're realizing that those verses don't allow us to do either one. Paul is saying, look after yourself and look after others. And he's presenting them not as complementary, but rather even as interdependent on each other. He's presenting this picture of mutuality. He's saying, as each one of you is responsible for trying to pick the other one up, for carrying one another's burdens, what you will be doing is you will be equipping and helping them to be able to look out for themselves as well, and as they take responsibility for themselves, that means they are then able to help out others as well. So these ideas don't conflict each other. They actually support and complement each other. And they present this picture of mutuality. The more we pour into others and the more they pour into us, the more we are both able to pour into others as well. And as we have that kind of foundation of that picture of this mutual dependence and trust, it sets the stage for what's going to come beginning in verse 6. Now the one who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with the one who teaches it. There's a, a beautiful picture here of this mutual interdependence and trust. He's saying if you are being called to teach the word, you have a responsibility to share that word with others. And for many people who are coming to, to be a teacher of the word, that is going to mean sacrificing the ability to be able to provide fully for themselves and for their family. And so he says, if you are investing yourself and making sacrifices to share the word with others, then there should be expected that they will share their good things with you. So in other words, as you share them and feed them spiritually, they'll take responsibility for help feeding you and your family physically. So it's this picture of, of mutual interdependence and trust. And, and in fact, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament where we saw this model with the Levites and the nation of Israel. The Levites weren't given land like the other tribes were because they were going to have to depend on the other tribes to be able to support them through their offerings. And as they got to participate in the offerings, this is God teaching them, again, a model of dependence and trust. And that's really easy if we look at this and from the context especially of, of our wealth in the West, and we say if this is as far as it has to go that we just have to make sure that the people who are feeding us spiritually are fed physically, that's not too hard to do with as much money and resources as we have. So if it's just a matter of making sure is my pastor fed, 
Is he doing okay? Does he, is he able to live comfortably? Check. Okay, I'm ready to go on. But if we think that that's as far as it goes, then we're missing the challenge that comes in the next verses, beginning in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool, for the person will reap what he sows. Because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. You know, Paul brings in these well-known agricultural analogies and would have been very familiar to his audience. And even if we're not farmers or involved in, involved in agriculture ourselves, we can get the analogy pretty easy. If you want to harvest later on, you have to sow now. If you don't sow now, you're not going to get the harvest later on. But at the same time, it's not as simple as simply just planning. As Paul's writing to people, when they would think about a context of farming, most of the time that they were thinking about subsistence farming. This isn't talking about building a farming empire. This is talking about raising enough food to be able to feed your family. And for you to sow seed now means, you take, it means taking money out or taking food out of yours and your family's mouths now. It means sacrificing things that you need at this very time in order to be able to reap what is needed in the future. If we think about it and maybe in a more modern, broad context, we could think about this as the principle of investment. If we want financial security later on, we're going to have to make financial sacrifices now. And as we make those sacrifices, as we invest them, then hopefully we will reap a harvest of financial security later on. But if this was all he was talking about, if he was just talking about make sacrifices now, get more later on, then it would simply be a measure of, of planning and discipline. But that's not Paul's topic here. Paul's not talking about be good planners. He's not saying you need to be more disciplined. He's trying to challenge and examine our hearts. Because the harvest that we're going to get later on is not the same thing that he's calling us to sow right now. He's not telling us to give up money now to get money later on. He's not telling us to give up food now to get food later on. He's saying you need me to be investing what you have, your time, and your money to be, in, to be reaping fruit for the gospel later on. And so in that sense, it starts to become a challenge to evaluate our hearts. What is in your heart that you're willing to sow right now that's going to reveal how important the, gospel of the, fr- the fruit of the gospel is going to be later on? And we have some beautiful pictures in the New Testament about what that looks like when churches and Christians do that well. You think about in 2 Corinthians 8, as Paul has the picture of the Macedonian churches, these poor, desperately poor churches who couldn't even take care of themselves, and they're saying, let us participate in meeting the needs of other Christians. And you have the pictures of the early church in Acts 4, as, as people would bring their money and they would hold it in common to be able to help meet the needs of each other. And even going back to Acts 2, the fact that here they are living these very hard lives, but yet they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship. So you have this picture of the early church, especially in the book of Acts and throughout the Pauline letters, as being a church that said, we will pour our money and pour our time into the fruit of the gospel. And what comes out is what we see in Galatians 1.6. We see the fruit of the gospel bearing fruit around the world. And that's the picture that we are challenged with. And yet when we look at how we're doing in the West today, I don't think it looks quite as pretty. If we were to, to ask ourselves, How much time have we invested in growing in God's Word? How much time have we invested in being equipped to disciple and evangelize others over the last year, over the last two, over the last three years? How do you think that we've done? 
Have we grown the way that we should have grown? And are we comfortable with getting those same results for the future? And as we start to examine that, and probably every single one of us looks back and maybe to different degrees says, you know, there are things I should have done differently. And I'm embarrassed by some of the opportunities that I wasted. But then we immediately start to go and make excuses and say, but I'm so busy. And we are. Every single one of us in this room is so busy. But then we look at how we spend time. They're, they've done studies on time management, and in the West, the, the, in the U.S. specifically, the average Christian spends 1.2 hours on religious activities a week. So that effectively means you're either going to church or you're skipping church and spending a few minutes once a day for the course of a week. And you're not going to get a whole lot of spiritual growth investing 1.2 hours a week. And we say, well, it's because we're so busy, and maybe some of us are, But the average U.S. Christian also spends 21 hours a week on social media and watching TV. How many times have we read the Bible in the last year? If the average Christian was to take those 21 hours and to invest it in reading the Bible, we could read through the Bible 16 times in a year. I don't know about you, I did not read the Bible 16 times last year. And I spent plenty of time watching TV and on social media. But Paul's not just concerned about our time. He's concerned about our money as well. And in fact, this may be his primary interest here because he uses the exact same language as 2 Corinthians 9, talking about how we give our money. And again, we have the powerful picture there of the early church giving generously to each other. And we have the picture of the poor churches of Macedonia being willing to give and saying, let us give sacrificially to meet the needs of others. So how do we do in the West today? It is, as they do the studies and look at the averages, they find that the average U.S. Christian gives 1.3% of their income to Christian causes. Most of that, but not all, to the church. Now, of that, most of the money that goes to churches actually gets spent inside that church. In fact, on average, less than 10% of church budgets go to outreach, and less than 0.1% of church budgets goes to reaching the 3.2 billion people that have not been reached with the gospel yet. There's an organization called Traveling Team, and they have some great and very powerful, but also very embarrassing statistics about our giving. Uh, one analogy that they give, I think I have the dollar in my pocket, they said if you were to take a ceiling about 25 feet high, we'll say it's about that, and so say from the floor to the ceiling represents all of the wealth and the income that U.S. Christians earn every single year, and if you were to take a dollar bill and send it end to end, That would represent, the height of that bill would represent the amount of money that is given to Christian causes by Christians in the U.S. And if you take that dollar and lay it flat on the ground, that represents, that height of that bill, if it were laying flat, represents the amount that we give to the unreached around the world. To put it another way, if you want to know how much U.S. Christians give to reach the 3.2 billion people that haven't been reached with the gospel, it's almost as much as Americans spend on buying Halloween costumes for their pets, but not quite as much. Now we look at that and we say, but we're better than that. We're spending more than 1.2 hours a week on religious activities. We're giving a little bit more than 1.3% of our income to Christian causes. We're giving a little bit more than that to the unreached. But if we were to get a report card on how we're doing, how comfortable would we be in in telling God, I'm putting my money and I'm putting my time where my mouth is. And I'm giving in the way that I'm called to give. 
And so if we look at this and we wonder as we go into verses 9 and 10, or we go as we look at verses 7 and 8, we hear Paul say, God will not be made a fool. And we start to wonder, who is Paul talking about here? I think we need to realize he's talking to us. If we're going to say that we're serious about being disciples and making disciples and reaching the world with the gospel, I think we have to say, what are we sowing and what do we expect to reap? And if we get really uncomfortable with what that is looking like in our lives, then thankfully Paul gives us the answer in verses 9 and 10. Turn there. So we must not grow weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not give up. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who belong to the family of faith. Now again, if we just picked up there, we might sound like Paul's starting to contradict each other. On one hand, he's saying, don't grow weary. Okay, we get that exhortation, Paul. But then he says, and in order to not grow weary, just make sure you're doing good to everybody, and especially all the Christians around the world. If you want to make someone feel weary, that's a pretty good way to make someone feel weary. Just say, all you have to do is take care of everybody. But Paul's not contradicting himself. He's actually giving a picture of what it looks like for the church to be the church. Because when we think about all the good that there is to do, when we think about the fact that there are millions of people in churches that are not being discipled, that, mean, that need to be discipled, many of them by us. And we think about the billions of people around churches that aren't being reached by those churches that need to hear the gospel. And then we think about the billions of people that don't even have access to the gospel themselves. We realize that there's plenty good to do. We recognize what Jesus says when he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We're not going to run out of good to do. But what happens is we start to do that good. What happens is we start to pour ourselves into discipleship. And what happens is we start to pour ourselves into ministry. And what happens is we say, well, I'm going to be the one who's going to go and I'm going to reach the nations. And I'm going to minister to the difficult. The more we give and the more we sacrifice, the more we start to feel like we're worn out. The more we start to feel like we don't have anything more to give. And if we're doing this in isolation and we're just pouring out everything that we have, then we're not going to last that long. And if somebody is going out from our body, if somebody is going out and looking to reach the nations or ministry even where they are, and nobody else is going to be there to support them, then they're going to burn out pretty quickly. But if instead, if there's an accountability within the body of Christ that every single one of us is saying, we recognize that we have this need and opportunity to do all this good around the world, and we're either going to go ourselves or we're going to be there to support those who do go, then all of a sudden, we have a model where we can continue to do good without growing weary and without giving up. You start to think about the needs that are out there. And again, we think about giving, and that's certainly a part of the picture. Is we think about missionaries, and we understand that there is a need to support missions. And obviously, you're in an organization where that is a very real reality to you. So part of this is the financial need to be able to give. But it's not just about that. It's about ministering to those who are going. It's about encouraging and supporting those who are going. It's about discipling those who are going out. It's about it pouring into and even just being there to support those who are pouring themselves out to others. And as we start to do that, as we start to mutually support each other, then all of a sudden we do have a model where we can continue to do this work and not grow weary and not give up. I'm sure in this room, 
most, if not all of you, will know the famous story of William Carey and Andrew Fuller. You know, William Carey was the considered by many to be the, the father of modern-day missions. You know, going out from, from the U.K. in the late 1700s, in 1792, he and another group of pastors forming the Baptist Missionary Society. And about one year after that, he himself goes to India, and he spends the rest of his 40 remaining years in India ministering. And before he left, as he announces to this, this mission, the rest of this group, that he himself is going to go to, to India, a fellow pastor, Andrew Fuller, said... That's like going down into a deep, dark mine. There may be riches at the bottom of that, but you're going to have to go through some unknown and dangerous territory to go there. Are you sure that you're willing to go down into that deep, dark mine? And William Carey famously says, I'm going to go down as long as you'll hold the rope. And Andrew Fuller dedicated the rest of his life for that. He served as president of the society for the rest of his life, and he dedicated his life to raising support, not just for William Carey, but for missionaries who were serving throughout much of the world by that time. But the thing of it was, Andrew Fuller wasn't doing it alone either. This wasn't a picture of one person staying at the top of a, ro- of a hole holding a rope for one more person, because as Andrew Fuller held on to that rope, someone else is going to have to hold on to him. And that's why he says do good for all who need it, especially the body of faith, because the more that we start to invest in holding the rope for those who are going down into that deep, dark pit where there are such riches to be able to harvest for the gospel, more people are going to need to hold on to us as well. And if we think that we're alone, and if we think if we give up our comforts, and we give up our money, and we give up our safety, and we go to the nations, and there's not going to be anyone there for us, then we may not even be willing to go, or we may give up pretty quickly. And if in turn, if we start to invest in being there for them, and there's no one there to pick us up, then we're going to bleed ourselves dry pretty quickly as well. But if instead, as you often see in mountain climbing or spelunking or anything like that, it's not one person with a rope, it's a series of people. Because as one person in that rope, dangling in that dangerous spot, and someone's holding the rope, someone else has a rope holding onto them, and someone else has a rope holding onto them. And if you're at the bottom, you need to know, I'm fully invested here, and I need to make sure that the person at the top is every bit as fully invested as I am. So this isn't a picture of us halfway saying, I'll be there for you, and I'll give to you if you go out. If you go out to reach the nations, I'll be there for you, and giving them just nominally, nominal support. This means that we are every bit as committed where we are here as those who are who are being sent to the nations. And that means that there's a wonderful opportunity as well. Because if nobody's willing to go, then no one's going to reach them. And it's not just people across the world. It may be people in our backyard as well. There are going to be people in so many different places who need to be reached for the gospel and isolated Christians and needs to be disciples that we may not be able to reach ourselves. And again, it may be people across the world. It may be people in hospitals. It may be people in nursing homes. It may be people in prison. It may be people in schools. It may be people in cities. But there are going to be people who need to be reached that we ourselves cannot reach. And we're needing someone else to go on our behalf to reach them for the gospel. And we need to make sure that we're fully invested in being there for them. And there's so many different ways that we can do that. I've been so humbled in our our small church 
to see the different ways that members from our church and, and those who are not part of our church but are connected to it are going to share the gospel with the nations. And some of this is missionaries who have gone out. We've had missionaries go out from our church that are now serving in both Central Asia as well as another one in the Middle East. We have some that are connected that are, are serving in, in Central Africa now and, and others that are serving on, um, in East Asia. So some of that is, is missions. But also some of that is, is serving locally. We, we have one woman who has developed a ministry. She has a special needs son, and she's developed a ministry to other special needs families. Because a lot of these families are afraid to go to church, and so no one's ministering to them, sharing the gospel to them, because they're uncomfortable going to church. So she's going and finding them and sharing the gospel with them. We've been blessed to start to get really involved with the, the justice-involved community, and we have a family in our church that operates sober living houses for people who are going through recovery and reentry. We've been have the blessing to start to go into prisons and in there get to know some of the local, uh, so local churches operating in the prisons, pastors and elders and leaders who are in themselves prisons who are dedicating themselves and pouring themselves in to spreading the gospel and to reaching the others who are in prison. We baptized one young man last year who is now himself serving as a guard at a jail in Louisville, and his best friend is serving as a police officer in Louisville. And you talk about the people that they are having a chance to pour into that we may not ever be able to meet. But you think about every single one of the people in those ministries, and every single one of them, as they pour themselves into it, they're going to need help. They might need financial support. They might need encouragement or even guidance. We've had the blessing to get involved with several churches now in East Africa, and most of these are, are new churches. The oldest one's only been there for three years, and it's amazing the growth that they're starting to see. But in these cases, you have, you have men who have been serving as pastor for a year or two, and now they have churches with, with multiple hundred people coming to them, and they have no mature leadership to help them out. And they need someone to give them guidance and support and someone even just to hear some of their struggles because there's no one else that they can talk to. I had a call with one man we got to, all know, uh, got to know well. We had a chance to spend time with him last May. We were over in Uganda. And he wants to set up a Zoom call because he said, Eric, I need some guidance. We have all these, these families now coming to our church. And it's men who have three different wives and three different families. And they're all saying they've come to Christ. Now what do we do? And by the way, I did not have an easy answer for him. But that's real life, and someone needs to have an answer. And what I was thankfully able to do was give him some guidance from Scripture, and then able to say, and by the way, thankfully we do know people who have been serving in Africa for a long time. I do know ministers that have been pastoring in Africa for decades, and I can get you in touch with them so they can provide some guidance for you. And the young man that was baptized, you know, last year, he, he reached out to me and was so thankful because he's recognizing this new ministry opportunity he has, but he has to work every Sunday, and so he's not able to be in church up to now. And he says, can we set up a Zoom call where we just start to walk through Romans? Because I want to get to know the Bible better. And what about the, the, the woman who herself is reaching out to the special needs community but has a special needs son herself? How worn out do you think that she gets and just needs someone to be able to be there for her? And how much trauma do you think people are seeing in these situations? And you yourselves have experienced that and know people have experienced that. And they just need someone to pour into them and someone to cry with them and someone to just hear their pain. And that's what it looks like when Paul is saying, do not grow weary in doing good and do not give up, but also do good to everybody. 
And what he's saying is that there are people in places that are at the bottom of that pit. And to mix metaphors a little bit, there's a really rich harvest at the bottom of that mine. Because their gospel is bearing fruit. And it's out there for us just to go and get it. And there are some people who are going to have to go to the places that the rest of us have, cannot go. And that may be some of us. So every single one of us has to ask the question, are we the ones ourselves are supposed to go down into that deep, dark mine? But if we can't go ourselves, then we have to recognize that we are supposed to be somewhere on that rope. And if we're supposed to be somewhere on that rope, then our call is to be every bit as committed as the person who is who has that at the bottom. Because if I can't go across the world, what that means is I have to be willing to sacrifice just as much where I am. And if I can't go across the world, maybe there's someone I can reach out to where I am. And maybe other people need my financial support. And definitely they need my prayers. And maybe they need my shoulder to cry on. And maybe they need my guidance. But if I'm willing to commit myself to pouring into them as they're willing to commit to going to the places that need the gospel, then the church can look like the church. And we can start to see fruit that is born in remarkable ways. And we think about the picture that we see in the book of Acts. And we think about what Paul says to the church at Colossians, a small church in a seemingly insignificant city. And he's saying, you are seeing the gospel bearing fruit around the world. And there's no reason that can't continue to be us today. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the power, for the conviction of your word. Father, we ask that as we consider and as we hold on to your words, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in us, piercing us, convicting us, exposing us. Father, we know that we are all falling short in some way. Give us the humility and the courage to see where you are calling us to a more radical obedience. But Father, also help us to see the beauty and the joy that is to be had in this obedience. Help us to see that we have an opportunity to, know, to participate in the great work that you are doing. And Father, we know that you do not need us, and yet you choose to work through us. And so Father, we ask that we would see the beauty of the gospel. We would see the riches of that are to be had when the gospel is taken out, when disciples are made and people are coming to Christ. And Father, as we see that and as we desire that, let us see as well how we can participate in that. If you are giving us an opportunity to go, Father, we ask that we'd have the courage to go. And if it's not for us to go, then we ask that we would see how we can support those who are. But Father, help us to be the global church the way you've called us to be the church. Help us to be committed to helping one another, to doing good to all people, but especially doing good to the body of Christ. And in so doing so, that the church might continue to be able to reach out, to go out into that pit, to find the riches of the harvest that you have prepared, and that we might be able to not grow weary in doing good as we do. And Father, we ask these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.